0: Welcome to Data Dialogues from Equifax, a podcast about how data-driven insights can power smarter business decisions. Welcome to the Data Dialogues podcast brought to you by Equifax. My name is Rissa Redden, and I am your host. As we kick off a new year, we're seeing greater convergence between economic headlines and the energy market, which have critical implications across consumer and commercial sectors, I'm delighted to have this opportunity to dive into the topic with an expert. I'm joined today by Mark Zoff, Manager of Market Analytics at AEP Energy. Mark, welcome. For our listeners today, could you please introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your area of focus at AEP?
1: Thank you very much, Rosa. It's an honor to be here. So at AEP Energy, I lead a market analytics division within sort of the services portion of AEP Energy. Our group's responsibility can, I think, best be broken down into three parts. First, uh, we help our clients uh, optimize their, not only their energy usage, but also their energy spending behavior, as well as helping them achieve their sustainability goals in the most cost-effective fashion possible. Second, uh, we help our colleagues in AAP Energy understand the uh, pricing landscape in which they're operating so that the prices we offer to either our customers, or our potential customers, customers best meet their needs. And then third, we help to provide market intelligence to both our current clients, as well as our colleagues regarding trends in energy markets, as well as the economy.
0: Uh, The first topic that I'd like to spend a little bit of time on, we've had a lot of discussion recently around inflation, and where we're headed from an inflation standpoint. Could you talk to us a little bit about maybe inflation broadly, but then I'd love to get into transitory inflation as well?
1: So that's the uh, trillion dollar question of the moment, you know, when it comes to not only answering the question of what is transitory inflation, I, I think it's also really important to understanding or answering the question of, are we experiencing transitory inflation or are we experiencing something different? And so I think there's, you know, potentially two different framings of what transitory inflation could largely be considered that are worth exploring. Uh, One of which, uh, you know, is certainly the more common one and, you know, justifiably common one, but another one uh, related to how the Fed is supposed to react to the recent bout of inflation that I think is worth talking about briefly as well. And so, I think like the likely common view of the term transitory inflation is that the bout of higher inflation that we really started to experience in earnest during the late spring and early summer portion of this year in 2021 would likely subside relatively quickly. And I think if you look at, you know, go back to the late spring and early summer of uh, 2021, there were some justifications for having that view if you broke down by components sort of the major drivers of inflation, it was largely confined to a relative handful of sectors. Uh, the Certainly the major individual sector uh, that was driving inflation at that point was the dramatic uptick in auto price inflation that we were experiencing at that time. And that was largely due to a series of supply chain bottlenecks and sort of happenstance that was really unique to the automobile industry. And that at least at that point, uh, wasn't really being experienced by any other portions of the economy to anywhere near the extent it was for the automobile industry. And the other major drivers of inflation at that time were uh, sort of base effect forms of inflation of sectors that saw dramatic price declines during the heart of the COVID crisis in the spring of 2020. I think airfares and whatnot uh, seen a dramatic increase in sort of year-over-year inflation, but if you compare it to 2019 price levels, you know you really weren't seeing any dramatic price movements. And so, you know, this was largely the view at the Fed, by and large, if you look at their projections, you know, as of June 2021, you know, the Fed expected its core inflation measure to only be, you know, around 3% in 2021 at that point and fall back to essentially its target in 2022, and that a rate hike wouldn't be needed until 2023. Obviously, that uh, forecast has not come to pass. Uh, The Fed now expects core inflation this year to be nearly 4.5%. Uh, to stay, you know, two point seven percent next year, and in their most recent, uh, you know, report out, uh, they expect three rate hikes next year, which is a pretty dramatic departure from even the most recent meeting.
0: What are some of the economic trends you're seeing in the energy market, and what are the implications for 2022?
1: And I think a lot of the supply demand mismatches that you've seen in the broader parts of the U.S. economy as a whole are also being seen in the energy sector portions of the U.S. economy especially the power and gas markets. Although thankfully the situation in the U.S., even if you account for the fact that there's been pretty material uh, increases in prices relative to a year ago and even relative to expectations for this year or a year ago, are much better than uh, what we're seeing in Asia and especially at time of recording in Europe. In terms of demand, uh, while it is true that by and large domestic consumption of natural gas is not materially, is not expected Uh, to materially change this year relative to last year. And there was a decline in the use of natural gas from the power sector after prices rebounded uh, from the lows during the summer of lockdowns. The important thing to understand is that there ended up being about 5% more demand for natural gas this year than was being expected a year ago. And a lot of this increase in demand for natural gas, that's really affecting pricing behavior and other knock-on effects in the energy markets is the fact that there was approximately 15% more natural gas being used by the power sector uh, relative to what was expected a year ago. Part of that is, if you look at this time a year ago, growth forecasts were closer to 3% to 4% for GDP for 2021 as a whole. You know, We're going to end up uh, roughly 5 you know, to 6% based on most readings. So not only do we have more activity in the economy, uh, which is helping to d- d- uh, drive extra demand for uh, electricity, natural gas, other you know sources of energy, but that furthermore uh, we saw an unexpected decline in some renewable forms of electricity, and especially hydropower in the uh, summer portions of the year as uh, droughts affected the West, and you saw a lot of you know demand that would have historically been filled by hydropower being filled by natural gas, and so uh, furthermore we have you know, the supply demand mismatch of, you know, greater than expected demand for natural gas domestically relative to what you were seeing a year ago. Uh, But you also saw a pretty dramatic uptick in LNG exports this year as a result of, you know, a dramatic increase in the differential between sort of US prices for natural gas and European and Asian prices for natural gas on sort of the same basis. You know, typically speaking for much of 2019 and 2020, uh, there wasn't a necessary price differential that, you know, for spare capacity, it would have made sense to export that. Uh, But in 2021, we saw large, and as we move towards the end of 2021, uh, dramatically increasing differentials between uh, U.S. prices and foreign prices, which has dramatically increased uh, the, you know, demand for uh, uh, natural gas exports from the U.S. And, uh, you know, typically speaking, what one would expect when there's a large rise in demand and a large rise in prices is an increase in production. But one of the major hallmarks of 2021 is that there really hasn't been an increase in production uh, that to anywhere near the scope that one would expect given uh, the sort of historical uh, production drilling behavior uh, that's occurred kind of historically during the fracking boom of especially sort of the 2012 to 2019 time period. And so we have, you know, greater than expected demand Uh, supply response that I think is relatively muted to what one would expect uh, given historical trends. And so that's led to a pretty dramatic increase in prices with uh, prices, you know, being, you know, this time a year ago expected to be around, you know, $3 per MMBTU. uh, Whereas, you know, today, even accounting for the fact that prices are falling pretty substantially in uh, the last couple of weeks, you know, closer to $4 per MMBTU. And so, you know, this has had a dramatic increase in pricing and uh, usage and other characteristics that affected inflation more broadly.
0: Mark, during the pandemic, unprecedented has been a word that we use quite frequently. However, are there any historical precedents or are there any historical trends or reference points that are appropriate to take a look at today?
1: I think uh, you know it's definitely helpful when understanding why we're in the position we're in today with regards to um, a very unique combination of extremely strong uh, GDP growth, but also uh, much higher than expected and from most people's perspective, much higher than desired inflation is it's helpful to not only look at the uh, 1970s and early 1980s, which was the last period where we saw extremely high inflation, uh, coupled with moderately good demand, but also understand some of the weaknesses in terms of the recovery from the post-global financial crisis period during the 2010s that I think guided a lot of decision-making in the early portion of the recovery that, while it's had many positive effects, it's also helped to lead us to where we are today. You know, if you look from, you know, the period 1971 to 1981, Uh, this was a period where you saw a dramatic uptick in terms of inflation. At the end of, you know, year 1972, the 10-year average inflation rate was a little over 3%. By contrast, at the end of 1982, we saw average inflation rate uh, over the previous decade of nearly 9% growth per year. And so uh, this was, you know, a massive run-up in inflation over a sustained period of time. And it really had many deleterious effects on the U.S. economy. And I think, you know, there is increasing worry, I think, from many actors in the economy that we might be returning to a period like that. While it is true that there are many elements of uh, what we're seeing today that are kind of similar to what we saw in the 70s, or at least parts of the 70s, in terms of relatively good poor periods of economic growth, even though in the 70s there were bouts of stagflation, uh, the real GDP growth was not dissimilar to that from you know, much of the 1980s or much of uh, the 1950s in terms of real GDP growth per year. You also saw in the 1970s bouts of energy price increases uh, helping to uh, lead to, or I should say energy price increases and agricultural price increases, which we're also seeing today, you know, I think contribute to rapid price increases. But, you know, with regards to why I think today might be different from the 1970s, there's really three factors that I'd um, you know like to focus on. The first is I think uh, U.S. businesses are much more competitive uh, today uh, and much more nimble and much more dynamic and able to respond to market conditions relative to what we saw in the 1970s. Part of this is because of the fact that we saw an increase in exposure of you know our consumption and products to imports, and so if domestic businesses weren't able to meet domestic consumers' needs. Foreign businesses, have increasingly been able to, and I think that's improved the quality of many U.S. products. You know, automobiles being a hallmark of that. Second, for better or worse, I think some of the fears of self-fulfilling inflation uh, were, you know, today uh, were in part a function of some of the you know perpetual increases that we saw in the 1970s. But some of that is the fact that uh, we do have to, when we look at the 1970s, consider the fact that workers today have much less bargaining power when it comes to guaranteeing themselves real wage growth uh, than they did in the 1970s. And then furthermore, um, you know, I think even accounting for the fact that you've seen a dramatic increase in the uh, inflation expectations of both consumers and financial markets, uh, relative to say a year ago, you know, we're still talking five-year inflation break evens of you know two and a half to three percent as of you know late 2021, which isn't altogether that different from some of the early portions of the 2010s. As well as uh, even though if you look at consumer inflation expectations, uh, certainly they have risen dramatically. But again, even if you compare it to especially the three-year break even for Uh, Michigan, as well as sort of the New York Fed survey of consumer inflation expectations that uh, they're still within, I would describe the range of some of the early 2010s peaks, even if they are up dramatically and do warrant, you know, continued consideration.
0: Are there any other periods in history outside of the 1970s that we should be looking at right now, Mark?
1: No. So I think understanding some of the uh, weakness of the post-global financial crisis period and, you know, how the response to that You know, to the extent that uh, we've overcorrected for that, and that we've almost, in some ways, maybe more than made up for uh, some of the weakness in terms of you know the post-global financial crisis economic growth, can help us to understand you know not only why the economic situation today is so much better, but why some of the unwinding of uh, the fiscal stimulus as well as monetary stimulus uh, might be justified at this time. From a demand perspective of looking at sort of the first couple of years after the global financial crisis and comparing it to what we're experiencing today, for better or worse during the uh, COVID response, uh, the government propped up demand in a way that is simply unprecedented uh, relative to what we uh, experienced uh, before and especially experienced during the post-global financial crisis time period. If we look at global financial crisis, Uh, wage income adjusted for inflation did not exceed 2007 levels until 2013. And total personal income levels took four years uh, to exceed 2007 levels. And part of that was even though there was a non negligible amount of uh, stimulus that was put into uh, the U.S. economy that, you know, especially after the initial post-response period that we actually saw sort of net fiscal drag from governments during the kind of follow-on years after, you know, 2010 or so in a way that you really did not see during any of the previous post global or post World War II recoveries. And if we contrast sort of the personal income growth of, or the really weak personal income growth of the, uh, you know, post global financial crisis period to today, it's leagues different. Uh, Last year, you know, despite the fact that inflation adjusted wages did fall modestly as a result of, you know, the pretty dramatic collapse of employment during the spring of last year, Personal income growth was uh, the strongest since 1998 and exceeded 5%. And this was almost entirely due to government transfers in the form of enhanced unemployment insurance and a catch-all category that included stimulus payments being nearly a trillion dollars more than in 2019. And then furthermore, in order to understand the consumer and sort of how they've had such a robust response to this crisis in a way that we didn't really see during the post-global financial crisis period... Is the fact that U.S. households enter the COVID recession in a much better place? Household income, as a, or I should say, household debt as a share of GDP, uh, was essentially 100% on the eve of the uh, recession in 2008 and 2009. Whereas, you know, at the start of the uh, COVID recession, it was only about 76%. So households were in a much better financial position, and I think the interplay of all this really helped, um, you know, avert the worst for small businesses. If we look at uh, the Equifax small business, uh, you know, delinquency and default indices. I think the peak in the default index, uh, you know, of a little over three percent last year, and early this year was only about half of what was experienced through the post-global financial crisis period.
0: Mark, at Equifax, we put a lot of focus on access to credit for individuals, and that would be access to capital for small business. When you first heard of the Paycheck Protection Program or the PPP program. What was your reaction given the level of focus and the level of interest that you have in the small business sector?
1: You know, it was a wonderful program. And I I thought the speed with which it was uh, deployed and the fact that they were willing to re-up the program when it looked like funds were starting to run out, uh, I think really speaks to uh, many policymakers learning uh, many of the right lessons about the sort of slowness of the response during the post global financial crisis period. And how much uh, small businesses uh, really suffered during that period. Like I I think the fact that with the Paycheck Protection Program, it not only helped to sustain businesses at a relatively low rate of borrowing, but that you know it helped to sustain employment since a lot of the forgiveness of those loans was contingent upon keeping employment levels at certain benchmarks relative to uh, prior to receiving the uh, PPP loan that I think it was sort of the right interplay between sort of allowing small businesses to stay alive during periods of weakness that were, you know, by any understanding outside of their control, uh, but then also being able to sustain employment and keep sort of that employer-employee relationship intact to sort of reduce a lot of the frictions that we saw during the post-global financial crisis period, where having uh, mismatches not only in terms of skills, but in terms of Uh, Employees finding employers at the right time. Being able to avert that, uh, I think, has proven to be incredibly beneficial in terms of, you know, keeping the U.S. economy on track in a way that you really didn't see during the post-global financial crisis period and really helped to, uh, I think, sustain uh, above average uh, GDP growth in a way that simply was not the case during the early 2010s.
0: And Mark, do you think that there's a a different level of recognition then on the importance of small business, that small business makes up a half of GDP, that it accounts for 90% of employees? I mean, there are all sorts of statistics out there. But do you think that the the PPP reflected a general sense of that or or a different level of recognition?
1: No, I I think that's uh, certainly fair. And I, I think the fact that uh, for much of the early portions of the 2010s, uh, you saw even accounting for the fact that you know in the early portions of the crisis, you know large businesses certainly did suffer as I uh, talked about. But you know if you look at sort of uh, like you know mid 2009 through like mid 2014 time period, uh, we saw small businesses really struggle uh, to survive, as you could see in the delinquency and default indices, and really a broad-based struggle, whereas large businesses were uh, sort of able to, you know, really benefit from economic trends that, you know, they certainly reacted uh, quickly, but, um, you know, weren't necessarily entirely their own doing. And so I think the fact that given how labor intensive small businesses are, and given how integral uh, these small businesses are really in every community across the country, even if, you know, certain large businesses are dominated in certain uh, portions of the country, you know, the, uh the film business in, uh, you know, Hollywood, uh, Silicon Valley in, you know, Silicon Valley in Northern California, oil and gas drilling in Texas and North Dakota to uh, an increasing extent, and you know, even finance in uh, New York. That you know, there are these hubs that really are dependent on these uh, sectors of the economy that uh, typically have dramatic returns to scale, but everywhere depends on small businesses.
0: And Mark. This podcast is about data and leveraging data to make smarter decisions. What data points are you most focused on right now? And what do you suspect are the data points that the Federal Reserve is most focused on right now?
1: From my perspective, what I continue to look at in terms of uh, some of the key data points, unfortunately, is, you know, the outlook for COVID and the outbreak, and as not only in the US, but also around the world. In terms of the outlook in the U.S., one of the things that's really important to understand is that COVID has played a major driver when it comes to some of the declines that we've seen in labor supply over the past year, above and beyond sort of you know some destruction of jobs that simply aren't able to exist anymore given uh, the particularities of the economic hit some sectors are occurring. If you look at the number of retirees and the labor force participation rate of people over the age of 55, you're seeing a dramatic difference relative to the post-global financial crisis period. Uh, since February 2020, the labor force participation rate for people 55 and older has fallen nearly two percentage points. And, you know, If you contrast that to during the sort of even the global financial crisis period when overall labor force participation rate was falling... Uh, You saw the labor force participation rate for people 55 and older actually increase about a percentage point. I think speaking to all of the sort of retirement nest eggs that they were counting on no longer being there to anywhere near the same extent and sort of having to work. Uh, But the fact is, you know, we've seen asset prices, both in terms of stock market uh, prices, as well as, you know, home price appreciation just have tremendous growth uh, during the sort of Post onset of COVID period in a way that didn't see during the post global financial crisis period, and that explains about two to three million of the missing workers uh, that are out there. Uh, additionally, you know, when, when in terms of the importance of prevalence of the COVID cases as well as hospitalizations, death, and whatnot, is um, you know the willingness of a large number of workers to supply themselves to the labor force. If you look at you know data points. Uh, in recent months, uh, you know there were about one and a half to two million people who weren't in the labor force uh, recently or earlier this fall who could plausibly return, and another half million or so that have been out of the labor force due to you know it could be long COVID-like system symptoms or other health-related considerations. And I think the fact that you continue to see school shutdowns, you continue to see concerns about health. Uh, keeping people out, you know, continued inability to access daycare in a way that parents don't feel uh, comfortable with, you know, that until that unwinds, um, that, uh, you know, the labor force situation probably isn't going to improve dramatically, barring, you know, a dramatic downturn in economic conditions that leads to a dramatic decline in, you know, the stock market and wage income and whatnot that sort of forces people into uh, the labor force out of need. And so if you don't have this increased supply into the marketplace that you're going to continue to see increased inflation from an energy market perspective, you know, obviously you want to continue to see uh, trends in terms of demand and seeing, you know, are you seeing outsized uh, demand for residential electricity relative to either commercial industrial electricity, again, reflecting, you know, potential fears about the economy. Um, And then, you know, certainly uh, continued job job growth and sort of being able to reattain the previous labor peak uh, is incredibly important when it comes to maintaining economic growth, as well as maintaining sort of equitable economic growth that can really sustain itself and allow for uh, strong consumption throughout the economy. But at the same time, having strong uh, labor growth, uh, or I should say strong employment growth, uh, but very weak labor supply, you know, is a recipe for continued inflation uh, with you know continued strong wage growth, just given supply demand dynamics, and so you know to the extent that that sort of forces the Fed's hand, and that it becomes sort of a self fulfilling issue, that um, you know until you can get this uh, labor demand and supply balance mixed optimally, that that is certainly a key consideration in terms of how will the Federal Reserve act in late 2022 and beyond. You know, additionally, uh, the ability of uh, local ports to be able to process goods I think is incredibly important in terms of uh, reducing inflation from the goods uh, producing sector of the U.S. economy.
0: Well, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. Any final comments or thoughts before we sign off?
1: Really appreciate uh, being a part of this uh, podcast series and uh, wish everyone a very happy uh, and productive start to the new
0: year. Thank you. And one last question for you, Mark, Uh, for anyone who would like to connect with you to learn more, where can they find you?
1: I'm available on LinkedIn. Thankfully, I'm the only Mark Zoff that I can find, so you can search for me by name there. If you'd like to contact me via email, my email address is M as in Mark, S as in Stephen, Zoff, uh, Z as in zebra, OFF as in Frank Frank, at aepenergy.com.
0: Mark, thank you so much for joining us for our Data Dialogues podcast today. Uh, I look forward to part two of our conversation and getting into how companies can meet carbon footprint reduction goals. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Data Dialogues from Equifax. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button to be notified of future episodes and leave us a review. To keep our legal team happy, we'd like to remind you that nothing in this podcast is legal advice, and we recommend to always consult with your own legal representative to ensure your data use is handled properly. Also, the opinions and views expressed in the podcast are not intended as hard facts and advice. They're also not necessarily the views of Equifax.